the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. It's entitled Worship in the Waiting, and over five Sundays, we're going to be exploring themes of anticipation and themes of hope as we prepare ourselves both physically and spiritually uh, to encounter afresh the story of Christmas. Now, traditionally, this period is a period of hopeful anticipation and preparation. It's known as Advent. The word derives quite simply from the Latin adventus, which means coming. And whilst we're really familiar with this idea of Advent in that it's linked to the fact of Jesus' birth some two millennia ago, the writer Constance Cherry in her book, uh, The Worship Architect, points out that there are in fact not one coming, but three comings of Jesus that should shape our understanding and occupy our attention at this time, these 40 days of Advent. This is what she writes. She writes, Christ has come in the incarnation. Christ is come in that his presence lives in and among us even now. And Christ will come at the end of the age. Notice then, if you will, past, present, future tenses. All wrapped up in this idea of Advent. So Advent encourages us to focus in on what Christ has done, what Christ is doing and what Christ will do. And we're going to touch on all of those things as we go through the series over the next four Sundays. Now, we're going to look at a few passages of Scripture this morning, so you may wish to have your Bibles in front of you. I'll try and give you a little bit of a heads up as to where we're going, uh, so it's not too much of a scramble to find the passages. But they're all going to be up on uh, the screen anyway. Uh, But please uh, read the screen or listen to me read them or read them in your Bible, whichever you'd like to do. But before we, we do that, before we look at Scripture together and we think of something Uh, that relates to the nature of God's king and his kingdom, I'd like you for a few moments just to place yourself in a situation. Imagine that you've entered a room, uh, you find there is a beautifully wrapped present on a table, and attached to the present is a label that reads this. This gift is for you, but don't open it now. Wait. Now, I think that kind of instruction could well evoke a mixed range of emotions within us, from that of being entirely irritated by the idea of being forced to wait, all the way through to an excited sense of anticipation and intrigue as you just start to think, oh, I wonder what it is that is inside that box that is currently under wraps. You know, I think in truth we're not very good at waiting, and our antipathy to it is fueled by so much of what we see around us, the way that we are actually encouraged to live our lives. Our credit-driven society leads us to abandon all thought of waiting and instead to embrace the buy-now culture. And when we do that, especially when we purchase online, what do we then do? Well, we look for a supplier that will guarantee delivery tomorrow. We want to reduce that waiting period to the minimum. What do we do when we go to the supermarket? We choose the shortest queue. And then we're irritated when the cashier takes longer serving others than we think that they should do. 
Our communication is instant, and we expect an instant response. Waiting is increasingly something we are being conditioned to avoid at all costs. It is, we are led to believe, time wasted. It is of no value. So given all of that, what culture does and speaks into when it comes to the subject of waiting, it would seem almost ludicrous that as a church we should celebrate Advent, four weeks dedicated to waiting. And if we want to just further emphasize the futility, we are encouraged through the items that we see for sale in our supermarkets not to wait and anticipate Christmas, but instead to, to bring it closer. Have you noticed that? Since not only are there mince pies on the shelves in September, but they also have an eat-by date before the end of November. So what are we to do? Well, I think in part the answer lies in, in rediscovering something of the power of waiting. A waiting that rests not in frustration, but that enjoys stillness. A waiting that isn't passive, but is active. Maybe we need to relearn what waiting is all about. The people of Israel in Jesus' time were well used to waiting. They had been anticipating the arrival of God's chosen one, the Messiah, the King. They'd been waiting for hundreds and hundreds of years. A succession of of God's prophets, men and women who'd been given special insight by God to interpret what was going on around them and also given special insight to think about how those things might relate to the story of God's plan in the future. They consistently spoke about a coming king. They spoke about someone who would bring in a new age, someone who would bring in an age of justice and peace, and salvation, and rescue, someone who would break the chains of the oppressed, someone who would bring freedom. So here's the first of our readings for this morning, Daniel chapter 7, if you want to turn with me. Now, Daniel was one of those such prophets. He he lived at a time of exile where thousands and thousands of God's people had been forcibly removed from their homeland, taken as captives to a strange land ruled by a foreign power. And recording the events that he witnessed in a vision one night, this is what we find Daniel says. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. I looked and there before me was one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations, all peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's what Daniel has to say in Daniel chapter 7. Go back a few uh, books and verses. Go, go all the way back to Isaiah chapter 9. Look at Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 and 2. These are verses that are so familiar to us. This is what we find. He's another Old Testament prophet. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. 
On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And then later on in the same passage, this is what he says. Familiar words for Christmas. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And you know, the the history of God's people between the period of exile that was predicted by Isaiah and experienced by Daniel right up to the time of Jesus' birth had been littered with the story of oppression, the story of enslavement. Since despite eventual release from exile in Babylon, the people of Israel found themselves consistently either under the authority of or under the threat of other nations. Initially the Persians, of course, and then latterly, as we get to Jesus' time, the Romans. And yet, when the time of waiting was over, When the coming of God's chosen one, his Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, happened, by and large, he was unrecognized. And in part, that was because of the fact that the people were looking for a very different king. And they were looking for a very different kingdom. You know, when you go through the gospel narrative, it's true, isn't it, that, that by and large, the identity of Jesus is, is kept under wraps within the, the progress of the story of his life. And yet there are so many hints, there are so many signs, things that are spoken, things that are miraculous, which should have been unmistakable. And in words that capture an echo of Daniel chapter 7 that we've just read a few moments ago, Jesus refers to himself by the very same title that Daniel uses, that of Son of Man. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, we read this. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. A very different king, a very different kingdom. You know, these people were looking for a military king. Uh, They were looking for an earthly political kingdom. But God sends his son, the servant king, whose rule is, is way more expansive, of course, than mere geography. This is a kingdom, says Jesus, as he talks to the political power holder of the day, Pontius Pilate, that is a kingdom not of this world. He says that it is a kingdom of another place. The people of Jesus' day were looking to be rescued from an enslaving physical power, from the might of Rome, as the people of Israel had throughout countless generations. But instead, Jesus came to provide a means of rescue for the whole world from an enslaving spiritual power, the power of death, the power of sin, the dominion of darkness that Paul writes about in the verses that we're going to read a little bit later from Colossians chapter 1, verses that have already been quoted from this morning. 
And so whilst it might appear rather paradoxical that we should find ourselves today just considering Advent, so being, if you like, a people who are waiting for the past, there is something hugely powerful, I think, when we recall and retell and reflect upon the story of Christ's birth and death and resurrection. And part, I think, of the point of retelling the story is that we can recognize the influence of it as it breaks into our world. The danger is, I think, that rather like the people of Jesus' day, we fail to see God at work in the past, in the present, and anticipate his work in the future. Now, the Hebrew word that we find translated in our Bibles as wait carries with it not the passivity and inconvenience of standing in a checkout queue, but instead it conveys an intensity of anticipation. The word means to look intently. It means to lie in wait for. We are called in this period of Advent to be lookout. We are called to actively and eagerly expect and anticipate God to be at work, building kingdom, building his church, breaking into all kinds of situations, the kind of things that we've prayed about this morning as Mike has led us. God is at work. In this time of Advent, We are called to be lookouts, looking for him. But as we eagerly anticipate, we are also called to enthusiastically participate in the work of building kingdom. Which reminds us that not only was Jesus a very different king, he was also announcing a very different kingdom. We're going to go to Colossians chapter 1. If you'd like to flip on into the New Testament, if you want to follow it, it's going to be on the screen. If you've got it open in front of you, we're going to read from chapter 12. Here the the Apostle Paul unpacks to his readers something of the wonder of God's king and the extent of God's kingdom. God, he says, has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. There's the theme of darkness and light again. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And the kingdom of God 
is forever linked to the sacrificial death and the resurrection of the king, God's king. And his kingdom, as the gospel writers, of course, reveal, is an upside-down kingdom. The last are first, the poor are blessed, the outsiders are welcome, light shines from darkness, death leads to life, victory is won through sacrifice. It's a kingdom where God, through his king, through Christ, is going to reconcile to himself all things. Not just, not merely, you and I and his church, but all things, including all of creation. And so part of our our waiting in the here and now and our waiting for the yet to come, as Constance Cherry describes it, is all tied up with the now and the not yet of God's kingdom. We say the Lord's Prayer, don't we, quite often. Maybe it's part of your sort of times of prayer and reflection. And the main petition, of course, of the Lord's Prayer is, Thy kingdom come. And as we say that, It rules out any idea that the kingdom of God is some kind of otherworldly, some sort of yet-to-be reality. And yet, of course, it's not fully realized. Tom Wright, in his book, has this to say. Uh, To use the words heaven and earth in the prayer describe two interlocking arenas of God's good world. Heaven is God's space where God's writ runs and where God's future purposes are waiting in the wings. Earth is our world, our space. When we pray, thy kingdom come, we are anticipating God's space and ours to be finally married, integrated at last. And so we have this idea of waiting waiting for the future, to be lying in wait, to be on the lookout for Christ, not only in the past, but in the present, but also in the future for his return and for the full reality of the kingdom to be realized and the full extent of salvation to be revealed because we only see it in part now. But to be those kinds of people, we have to accept the current reality that we live in. Mike has hinted at that through our prayers. We live in a broken and disjointed world. A world where, as citizens of God's kingdom, we should be working for change. We live in the not yet. We are called to both wait and work. We are called to recognize and realize God's possibility for our lives, for the lives of our community, for the lives of this church, for the lives of this city, this nation, and for the world. We are waiting for a future that involves the transformation of the present as we seek to be salt and light in a world that needs so desperately to explore and discover and experience the transforming power of God's salvation and the transformative manifesto of his kingdom. But as I draw to a close, let me take you back to that room where we started. There on the table is a beautifully wrapped present, but this time the label has changed. This gift is for you. Why not open it?
You know, God's gift to us this Christmas is his son. And it is the salvation that he offers through his death and resurrection. It's a gift that he offers freely. It is graciously given. And yet it's a gift that requires acceptance. It's a personal gift. But it's one that we don't need to wait to open. Because the first step of faith, which will inevitably lead to all of the things that we've talked about, that lifetime of active anticipation and looking for Christ to work, is something that can be taken now. And accepting God's gift requires that we recognize the giver and that we accept God's chosen king as our king. It requires that we accept our own brokenness and that we own it. That we recognize that we cannot through our own actions be reconciled to God. It requires us to step down from the throne of our lives. To vacate it in order that the king of kings, Christ, can take his place. So the question for all of us even amongst the time of waiting, is what are you waiting for? Oscar Romero, the Archbishop of San Salvador, was assassinated in March 1980. He was assassinated while standing by the altar celebrating Mass in the chapel of the Divine Providence Cancer Hospital, where he lived and where he worked. For many years, uh, Romero had spoken out against the gang violence and the political corruption that was endemic at the time in El Salvador. He worked tirelessly for justice. He prayed consistently that God's kingdom would come on earth as in heaven. And amongst his writings is an Advent poem, which I'm going to close with before we pray. It reminds us of what I think is the underlying attitude which encourages expectant waiting, that sure knowledge that when we come to God, we need to come as those who are poor in spirit. We need to come such that he will bless us abundantly. This is what Romero wrote. No one can celebrate a genuine Christmas without being truly poor. The self-sufficient, the proud, those who, because they have everything, look down on others. Those who have no need even of God. For them, there will be no Christmas. Only the poor, the hungry, those who need someone to come on their behalf will have that someone. That someone is God. Emmanuel. God with us. Without poverty of spirit there can be no abundance of God I'm going to pray just before Helen and the band come back and we share some more sung worship as we draw towards a close but let's pray together as we think about this theme of Advent as we think about this theme of worship in the waiting let's pray Heavenly Father In this season of Advent, this time of active anticipation, help us to prepare to welcome Christ Jesus Messiah into the bustle of our lives and into the hard-to-find moments of solitude.
Heavenly Father, help us to prepare to welcome Christ Jesus Messiah into our homes and into our situations, along with friends and family, those we know and those new to us. Help us to prepare to welcome Christ Jesus Messiah into our hearts and into those hidden parts of our lives. Help us, Heavenly Father, to prepare to welcome Christ Jesus Messiah since beneath the surface of your story is the inescapable fact that you entered this world as vulnerable as any one of us in order to nail that vulnerability to a cross. Our fears, our insecurities, our sins, all that separate us from you, our loving Father, were exchanged by your grace for your love. 